friend Chris talk about a couple of movies around a theme of our choosing. How are you doing today? I'm doing good. It's daytime, John. We usually record these at night, so uh, the audience can tell us if there's a different energy on uh, this episode. Well, I mean... At least, at least some of the different energy is us uh, hoping that this Zoom records hold together because our t- uh, technical local uh, recordings have uh, seemingly failed us. But uh, uh, hopefully, the uh, the change in recording methods, the change in t- nighttime, the fact that neither of us are drinking alcohol, uh, none of it uh, disrupts the vibe too much. You know what? It it feels more like uh, we're going for a very lo-fi, independent vibe with this episode, John, which I think is apropos when we talk about what the subject of the episode is. Absolutely. Which, uh, I mean, you set me up nicely for it. Uh, today's episode, we're going to be talking about Jim Jarmusch. Um, this was my pick. Um, and mostly, like, I, so sometimes we pick filmmakers that is an excuse for me to... Um, uh, names that I have heard but have not seen anything of. This was only slightly less that because I've seen stuff like Ghost Dog Way of the Samurai or Only Lovers Left Alive uh, uh, prior to this episode. But still, like th- this was just th- something I thought would be uh, a-, a nice, fun, and mostly chill uh, uh, set of uh, movies to watch. And uh, yeah, I it was. <laughs> I, th- I think our uh, the two, our two picks for today are mostly going to focus on some more some of his stronger earlier more chill kind of stuff. But uh, um, overall, I still you know was happy with the whole experience, even with some of his later stuff. Um, is there any particular threads or intros you want to do with uh, Jarmusch before we get started? I, I I think the only thing I'll say is it's I think. People come to Jarmusch in two different ways, right? So there is the people who started to discover him as he really started to break out in more mainstream movies, like Ghost Dog is a great example. Um, Only Lovers Left Alive, which is fantastic. Um, you know, he really started to work with much bigger actors, uh, Broken Flowers with with Bill Murray. Bill Murray was doing that run of great independent kind of indie stuff and and hit w- w- with that. Um, Patterson, another great one. I just, on your recommendation, just watched that. Um, so there's people who came to him from there. And then there's people who kind of grew up and came with him in the early kind of 90s independent era when it was uh, people like him and Richard Linklater. So they come, you know, via films like um, Stranger Than Paradise or uh, two of the ones that we're going to talk about today. Um, I kind of was in between. Um, I I knew of him uh but I didn't really get into him until a little bit later and then was able to kind of go back and find uh, VHSs of some of his early stuff. So I'm not kind of slavish to one area or the other. Um, I think he's got a real interesting kind of draw uh, to what he is interested in like filming and what he is interested in shooting that kind of plays out over both of those eras. So um just looking forward to having a good conversation. And and to your point, it gave me an opportunity to revisit some stuff that I hadn't in a long, long time um, and wanted to see if it still held up. And it does. So that, that's always good. Yeah. But yeah, I'm ready to dive in when you are, sir. Absolutely. And, and I feel like to get much more ornate would be sort of against the point of talking about Jim Jarmusch in the first place. So why don't we why don't we get down to our first movie, which is 1986's Down by a pick for a Jarmish film, uh, I'm going to pick a one that features one of my favorite uh, artists of all time, and that's Tom Waits. Uh, so Down by Law is probably, if it's not the first Jarmish film I ever saw, it was this maybe the second. Um, and it, I think it's really indicative of a lot of things that Jarmish does in his films. It's a film that is very interested in place. It's very interested in environment. Um it's not so much interested in story and it's not so much interested in plot, which I don't really think a lot of his films are. It's much more interested in location and setting and then characters and how those characters work within that setting. Um, And down by law, 
is a beautiful example of that. Um, this came after his big break, Stranger Than, Than Paradise, once again featuring um, a collaboration with uh, John Lurie. John Lurie is one of the leads of this film, along with Tom Waits, and a certain Italian gentleman called Roberto Benini. Um, I was listening to a lot of the kind of background about this, this movie. Jarmish doesn't do commentaries, but he does kind of like Q&A and recollections about the movies. Um, and he was talking about... Um, I think this is a theme with a lot of his movies. I know it'll crop up again when we talk about our second pick, but he was always interested in New Orleans. Never been there, but was really interested in it, thought it was a cool location, so decided to write a movie about it. Um, that's how a lot of these movies kind of happen. Um, and then when he was serving on a film jury for some place in Europe, he met Benini. And as the story goes, um, while all the other jury members were really focused on watching the movies, he and Benini would constantly sneak out and leave the movie to go smoke cigarettes. And they had no language between them except a little bit of French, but they became really close friends just over that experience. And Jarmish decided, well, you know what? I'm going to put this little guy, I'm going to write him into the movie as well. And that seems to be how a lot of Jarmish's films work. It's just these kind of found things that interest him outside of movie making. And then he decides to just wrap a film around it. So Down by Law is... Um, 1986, it's about three people that uh, lead very different lives, and they meet up in prison. They are uh, arrested for doing various things. John Lurie plays a um, pimp who is kind of tricked into um, getting arrested uh, because he's. it looks like he's trying to get an underage girl to join his, to join his stable of, of, of women. Uh, Tom Waits is, is Zach. He's a um, DJ who does some kind of shady things on the side. In this case, he is um, just supposed to be delivering a car across town. Uh, and it turns out he is also set up. And when the cops pull him over and open the trunk, there's a dead body in there. So he goes to prison. Um, then Roberto Benini is just this, um, is just this Italian tourist who uh, meets up with Tom Waits earlier in, in the film. And then later on winds up in the same prison cell as uh, Lurie and Waits. And uh, you know, while Waits and Lurie are, you know, innocent and they were framed for these things that they didn't commit, they go to Benini, the, the sweet, innocent uh, Italian tourist, and they say, uh, you know, I suppose you're innocent, too. And he's like, oh, no, I killed a guy. <laughs> and the way he killed him is somewhat comical and is completely unintentional, but he most certainly did kill somebody. Um, and of course, then they develop a rapport. Uh, they get a little stir crazy in prison and they break out. And they break out and they kind of go their separate ways. That's the movie. It's not really talking about anything. It's not a commentary on anything. It's just literally, here's an interesting location. Here are three interesting characters. Let's put them in this scenario and just watch them for a little bit of time and then leave them afterwards. Um, but what's really interesting about the film first of all, we got to just talk about um, uh, this is filmed in black and white gorgeously filmed in black and white by Robbie Mueller. Uh, it is one of the most, I, I kind of thinking back now over a lot of the films that I watched from Jarmish, this might be to me, his most beautiful film. It's just, it's simply gorgeous. Black and white has never looked as sumptuous as it does in this, in this movie. Um, the performances are what they are. Tom Waits is very much Tom Waits. He's, you know, he's a, he's a DJ, but he's, he's basically Tom Waits. Um, Roberto Benini is Roberto Benini. Uh, if you've seen him in any of his other films, Johnny Stacchino or um, any of his other uh, Italian films, uh, he's basically who he is. John Lurie is the only one who kind of plays a character. He plays a slightly larger than life version of what I imagine John Lurie to be. You know, th this is a guy who is a, um, kind of a bohemian artiste of the highest caliber. He's part of the lounge lizards. He's an actor. He's a composer. He's a musician. He's a writer. Uh, you know, and he brings all of those to this, this kind of cool, suave pimp. Um, and the movie just wants to watch them and watch them interact. And that's really what it does. Um, I'm going to stop there because really to talk about the plot is ridiculous because there's no plot. They go to jail, they get out of jail, they go their separate ways. Um, it's the interactions in between. So, John, I, I guess I'll I'll kind of end there and jump to you to ask. I, I know you were more familiar with later Jarmish. So now coming into here where things are not 
necessarily as plot driven as they would be on films like um, Ghost Dog or, or Only Lovers Left Alive. How did this sit with you? And um, from a character perspective, kind of where were you drawn kind of going in, in into the film? I, um, yeah, I, I liked, uh, it was, it was interesting cause you know, I was, I was looking up the filmography and I, so I started with stranger than parrot or no, I think I kind of, I tried to go in order as best I could. Um, and, and had seen all the accolades for stranger than paradise, which this is not an episode about, so we're not going to dwell on it too much, but I kind of found myself bouncing off that one and not really being that affected by it. Um, but when it came down to down by law, um, I, I found that 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 you know much more character, much less plot driven, much more character focused, um, and the the you know the the black and white imagery stuff. I found that that stuff worked considerably more. And I think in this movie, and I think it does boil down to the uh, the camera work and and of course the whether you call it performances or just the the casting decisions of uh, Tom Waits, Roberto Benigni, and. Uh, and John Lurie that ends up being like imminently watchable. Um, I think that uh, I think we, we were, we were talking before we started that like one of my t- big takeaways from this whole experience is that has been that I want to start watching the fishing with John series on uh, criterion uh, just cause um, yeah, John Lurie is a se- seemingly fascinating person slash character that I would like to know more about. Um We've been, but, but like for me, I think where I was mostly drawn was just how Roberto Benini sort of upends the dynamic because you do get one scene with him at the beginning or near the beginning with where he runs into Tom Waits and he gives you a little taste of what he's about to do. But the the movie is does more or less have uh, Tom Waits and John Lurie as sort of the two like primary leads of the three and it's only later once they're in jail that we bring back roberto benini um if i could use a if i could use a metaphor that i hope uh makes sense uh we've recently been re-watching uh 30 rock and in the beginning of 30 rock uh they're talking about the uh, some kind of convection oven where they need they're they need to bring in Tracy Jordan into the show that exists because they're missing that third heat, um, as uh, Jack Donaghy says. And I feel like Roberto Benigni is basically uh, Tracy Morgan in 30 Rock, which is that like you need that chaos energy. You need that, you know, these are, t- you know, John Laurie, uh, Tom Waits, two cool guys being cool. And even watching them just sort of like, be cool at each other is is fun to watch but once roberto benini comes in as the clearly like silly innocent man who actually did kill someone just and doesn't understand english just so just throws like weird off-kilter english catchphrases at them all the time is and just watching their reaction to like i don't understand what i'm what's happening to me right now like you (laughs) I'm sure not to denigrate their acting abilities, but that there are a lot of moments once Roberto Benigni shows up where it feels like they are not so much acting as just like, just trying to like keep a lid and not just completely fall apart at this crazy person that they are having to deal with. (laughs) Well, I think there's a, I'll try to extend the cooking metaphor a little bit more. I think Roberto Benigni is the binding agent for the three of them to have the relationship they wind up having by the end of the movie, because before he comes into the prison, I mean, you're starting to get a real sense of conflict between um, Jack, John Lurie's character and, and uh, Zach, Tom Waits character. They're, they're starting to come to loggerheads. They're starting to hate each other. Um, There is a rivalry there. They are two alpha males and the way that you bind them together is to get this crazy little Italian, you know, in there that completely offsets the balance. Um, And I I think without his injection into the film, you don't get the the ending that you get between them where there's, again, it's not so much an ending as the movie just kind of stops at a certain point, but you don't get that that resolution of their relationship that you do without him. Uh, he is the reason why um, they stick together for so long. He literally is the binding agent when they escape from prison um, and they're getting ready to cross the lake to throw the sense off the dogs. And Benini's like, wait, I can't swim. And he's just screaming out, Hey, I can't swim. You know, when they, they leave him 
only to then, you know, come back and, and, and save him because they, they realize they are better with him than they are without him. Even though it makes no logical sense for the story that he's better with them except that the way that the movie, you know, winds up playing, um, he's the, he's the binding agent to the relationship. So it, it does really work to have him there as that agent of chaos. Absolutely. And then like the, just the, the small decisions to have him be the only one that knows how to, you know, catch and cook a rabbit or, or then later the seemingly almost like Dave's ex machina of him running into a random Italian woman <laughs> out in the middle of nowhere <laughs> and then immediately falling in love gives them the food and the clothing they need so that the other guys can go on their separate ways. And he's just going to stay with this new uh, Italian lady he met in the middle of uh, Southern uh, United States. Uh, Which we should, we should note uh, is played by Nicoletta Brasci, uh, who is his real life wife. I, they weren't married at the time. Uh, I think they got married shortly thereafter, but that's, it just adds another kind of, um, twist to the storytelling that yeah of course he finds this italian woman in the middle of the woods like who's running an italian an authentic italian kind of you know trattoria in the middle of the louisiana swamp <laughs> uh but it's wonderful uh it, it, it is really wonderful it, it also brings up another point about the movie and Again, we, we're not here to talk about Stranger Than, than Paradise. Um, I know you and I talked about it when when you watched it and I had rewatched it. Um, I came away much fonder of it the second viewing than I did around my initial viewing. And some of that is because of, again, I, I think this is where this is where more than anything else, Jarmusch excels as a filmmaker. His sense of place is astounding. When I watch Stranger Than Paradise and I see how he films um, New York and, and how, you know, that comes into play. It, it feels so real and it feels like a New York that you never see in movies, even movies at the time with New York and, and was a much shadier kind of grimier place than it is now. Um, you still never quite saw it like the way that Jarmusch does. And the same thing with, with New Orleans, you, you know, you, when you, you, when you think of movies that in New Orleans are always these, you know, um, these uh, grandiose locations and you, you think of Mardi Gras and you think of all these other areas. Um, he films New Orleans and Louisiana in a very different way. Uh, and it's, it, it's, it, it's a seedier way. It's a more lived in way where these characters just live. These, I don't think, especially in the early part of his career, he had no interest in creating characters that lived in, you know, the mainstream suburbia of America. He wanted to explore these a little bit more cluttered, disorganized, but vibrantly alive pockets of Americana. Um, and he does that beautifully. And, and I think, again, when you are filming something like that, and then you throw in a foreign element, literally a foreign element, like you do with Benini in this film and with the Hungarian um, cousin in Stranger Than Paradise, uh, I, I think there's an interesting commentary on 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 America there. He does it again. I, now that I'm thinking about it, he does it again in the next film we're going to be talking about. Sure too. Does. You know, what does America look like through the eyes of someone else? Um, so I guess, even though I said, there's not really a lot beyond just the location and the interaction of these characters, there is like a subtle commentary at play here in this early work that I, I do really find fascinating. And again, if you're just going to throw some Tom Waits songs um, in a movie, I'm already there anyway for it. So all the more power for down by law for me. <laughs> I, I'm pretty sure that in the ballad of Buster Scruggs, there's uh, I've I saw at least a few people make the joke that like Tom Waits didn't realize that he was being filmed that day. Uh, and I wonder, uh, and you said that you said earlier that Tom Waits being Tom Waits. Uh, I wonder if that's just how Tom Waits exists uh, as sometimes people are around film crews just sort of exist around him and he doesn't know why, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, it's funny, but at the same time, um, I think Tom Waits is very aware of his persona and he can find it. Now, again, I'm going to I'm going to be very clear in my unabashed love of Tom Waits. Uh, he's just one of my favorite artists of all time. Um, so I, I typically can think he can do no wrong, but I think he's very good at calibrating his Tom Waitsness. And, uh, you know, we didn't talk about there are some other people in this this movie. Um, what are the other people in this movie in an incredible 
incredible performance is Ellen Barkin uh, is in one scene uh, in the opening of the film uh, as Tom Waits about to be ex-girlfriend. And it's literally just one scene where she shatters all of his records and breaks up with him. Um, And just the way that he is so kind of like hang dogged and just kind of not cowering. He's not afraid of her, but he's just like, he's just a, down dirty sorry dog and he he realizes it and and uh, you know he only gets really upset when she's about to throw out his beautiful shoes his beautiful steel tip shoes and he gets a little concerned um it, it, it's that's it's that's the type of thing like when i think of jarmish i think of that i think of that type of cool i think of john lurie who never seems to know to close his mouth all the way when he's always talking in every movie i see him in he's got very big full lips and they're always kind of open he has to breathe through his mouth um but when he does that there's just this alluring kind of European cool to it. Uh, and that's the other thing I thought of when I thought of these movies. Um, there is definitely a Jarmish comes from a very European sense of like kind of cool filmmaking. That's what I think of. I don't think of early independent American cinema. I, I think of like Godard and I, I, I think of Breathless and I, I think of like new wave French cinema when i see these early films there's a little bit of that same of that same spirit especially to this type of early stuff here well i mean we were talking i mean the last time we talked the last time jarmish came up on this podcast i think was when we mentioned ghost dog in the melville episode yeah you nailed it there's a huge line between jarmish and melville i feel like absolutely in the, in the scene where uh, ellen barkin breaks up with tom waits or even in this in the first intro scene with uh, with john lurie and his uh, and one of his uh, girls the like the conversation where she just basically dresses him down the whole time and uh, even like points a gun at him for several seconds without him yeah. sort of like either cluing in or being okay with it like it's it's the the the, the two leads for all their posturing are you know they're kind of schmucks which which i think helps to, yeah i think that helps to like they disarm are. them for me is that the fact <laughs> that these are kind of idiots uh um for yeah again no and again i say this all this respect to john lurie and tom waits but yeah they're they're kind of they're kind of schmucks that's a great point. And, and it's the same sort of the same thing happens in, again, we're quasi talking about stranger than in paradise, even though we're not um, the women are the smartest people in the films for both of these films. A hundred percent right there. Yeah. Of the movies we watched or I, the only thing I didn't watch this time around were the two that I had already seen and I didn't get to see the limits of control. But other than that, I saw, I pretty much went the whole through the whole gamut. And I think down by law was easily like the strongest uh, mm. choice uh, of the stuff that I watched, like without quite with a question. You know what? I have probably nothing else to add either. Um, this is probably going to be a shorter episode, but you just, you did just bring up uh, cause you weren't able to see limits of control. One episode idea we'll have to bring to fruition are uh, we should do an episode on misfires. Okay. Because, uh, <laughs> I have seen limits of control. Um, and if you want to talk about a misfire in a filmmaker's filmography, it might be that one. Uh, I'd love to hear if people um, are really drawn to that, but that one is just a, that does not work for me at all as a movie. Um, so we're not talking about my... like flawed movies that we desperately want to champion. We want to talk about movies that are just absolutely Yeah, I think wretched. we want to talk about movies that, well, I mean, look, not a terrible movie, just, I think, uh, I think a misfire can be broadly defined. Um, yeah, no, uh, this is not uh, like an underrated or overlooked movie that needs to be championed. This is a man, you know what? I really like this filmmaker. I love most of his work. That movie does not work. <laughs> At least in my opinion. So maybe we'll have to think of that for a few. I was going to say that one's probably going to roll around in the old brain box for a minute. But uh, <laughs> why don't we use uh, why don't we use the break uh, to uh, to think of some ideas while we move on to our next film? Sounds good. Uh, chatting up a couple ideas for that misfires episode which uh, i'm very excited for but now it's time to move on 
uh, to keep this train rolling, as it were, uh, with 1989's Mystery Train, uh, the direct follow-up to Down by Law. And uh, yeah, this is a, uh, I think this is a, well, they call it an anthology film, but I basically, this, this movie I think what I think stands out most for it, aside from like, we can talk a more about places and the characters and how that stuff builds up on there. But what stands out for me initially when we're talking about mystery train is the, the structure of it. The, we're going to tell three short stories um, that sort of tie together around a specific, like either a, like the, there are, they're all happening at the same time, or there's some kind of thread that, ties them together which if you want to go down the list of jim jarmusch movies um night on earth uh coffee and cigarettes uh you know all there's plenty of examples to be found is that this is a film that's mostly just like we're going to gin up some kind of structure uh for it and then just sort of put people into that and see sort of how it plays off um in this case, uh, Mystery Train takes place, uh, each of the three stories in Mystery Train takes place over um, the same day and then night and then following morning. Um, the And the way that you know that is by a brief radio segment where the voice of Tom Waits uh, as a radio DJ, possibly the same DJ as Down By Law, not, not entirely sure. I, I think Chris might have some thoughts on that, uh, introduces uh, Elvis Presley's blue moon and of course elvis presley and you hear that so you hear that um that dj interstitial uh in each of the three segments and elvis does sort of provide a overarching uh an overarching sort of uh presence throughout uh the whole movie but uh yeah where chris where would you like to start with uh when it comes time to mystery train so i want to start with uh a lot of the similarities to what we just saw in down by law. Cause I think this is very much the same movie freed of plot. Um, there's a little bit uh, of you burying the lead there. Uh, it, it is tied together by all of those things. It's all tied together also by a night spent in a very specific hotel. But when we talk about, you know, Elvis and why Elvis figures so deeply into this um, again, this is all about location. In this case, everything takes place in Memphis, Tennessee. Right. Yeah, so that- Sun Records, Graceland. I mean, this is this is another slice of Americana. And just like with Down by Law, this is another one where I was listening to the the QA kind of audio essay by Jarmish afterwards for Criterion. And he's like, I'd never been to Memphis, was always interested in it, started writing a movie about it. Um, so it, I, I think you nail it. it. It it is literally the same thing. It's it's a location, a set, a, a place in time, and then just putting these characters in a situation and watching them bounce off of each other. In this case, it's an anthology uh, kind of vignette format, uh, but you will see a lot of the same characters. It's his first color film uh, again, shot by Rob, Robbie Mueller, um, slightly robbed of the natural beauty. I think that down by law has, but again, this just reinforced how much a fan I am of this guy's cinematography. It is gorgeously shot. Um, even when the things that are being shot are dilapidated buildings and rundown hotels and hotel rooms. Um, there's a sense of color, especially in the first vignette, um, which is about, again, parallels to Down by Law and uh, Stranger Than Paradise. It's about a uh, young Japanese couple, this this young girl and, and guy who uh, are traveling across America and they're stopping in Memphis because they want to go to Sun Studios and they want to go to Graceland. Uh, and they want to, they, you know, the girl is obsessed with Elvis, the guy, not so much. He's always saying like uh, Carl Perkins, like how come everyone yeah, yeah. obsessed with Elvis? Carl Perkins is much better. Uh, Roy Orbison is much better. Uh, so, you know, it, it, the first one, uh, there's also another tying piece. Uh, it's not only the radio piece by Tom Waits, and, and I'll get to him in a second. There's also a gunshot in each vignette. Each character hears a gunshot, and it's the same gunshot. And one of the things I like about the structure of this film is by the third vignette, you actually see the gunshot. And you see what happens. It's, it's pretty comical and fun. Um, uh, I do kind of look at this as a quasi-sequel to down by law. So, uh, you know, I'm sure this, I'm not the first person to kind of think of this. Um, Tom Waits is in it as an anonymous DJ. Uh, 
um, who in- introduces um, Blue Moon. Um, in Down by Law, one of the things that he talks about is he he can never hold down a DJ job for long. He has to travel from town to town and he has to change his name. Um, so he has different kind of DJ names. I think his DJ name in, um, I'm trying to remember it now, it's DJ Baby Sims or like uh, uh DJ, DJ Lee Baby Sims is his name in um, Down by Law, but he talks about like, you know, what are you going to do when you get out of here? I'll probably go to another town, probably be a DJ somewhere else. So in my in my world building for Jim Jarmusch films, uh, where he has escaped Louisiana, he's gone to Memphis and now he's the local DJ there. There's another vignette that stars um, Nicoletta Brasci um, as a woman who is... Um, her husband has died and she's trying to get him back to Italy and she's having a stopover in Memphis for the night. And there's, even though Benini is nowhere to be found and you don't know the name of this Italian woman who's burying her husband, there's nothing from stopping me uh, by from imagining that Roberto Benini somehow died in the diner and she's going to take <laughs> him back now to Italy. Um, again, there's nothing in the film that 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 leads you think that, but there's nothing in the film to stop you from thinking that. So I like to think of it that way. Um, the uh, Jarmusch cinematic universe coming together. It's the Jarmusch cinematic universe. And if you can't actually get Tom Waits to be in your movie, uh, hey, get the next best thing and get the leader of the clash. Joe Strummer is in this movie. He's the star of the third piece. Uh, so I'm totally happy there. Uh, Lurie is back, but he's doing the original music for the film as opposed to actually acting in it. But again, I it's the same thing where it's not... Uh, there's no real plot. I mean, like the central plot is maybe what's the gunshot. If a gun goes off in the first act, you got to figure it out by the third act. It's a variation of Chekhov's law. Um, but it's, it's, again, it's just a, it's a, it's a chill kind of sedate look at these people and a look at this town and this city. Um, not much more than that, but I don't need it to be much more than that. I'm really happy to kind of watch the interactions at play. Steve Buscemi is in this and is really good. Um, Screaming Jay Hawkins is in this. <laughs> it is just a delight as the owner of the hotel where they stay. Um, the bellhop is played by, we were just talking about it, um, uh, uh, Spike Lee's brother, um, which I think is uh Sinke, I think that's his name. I've never heard it pronounced out loud. Um, and he's really funny. He, there's like a weird kind of naivete to him in the film um, as he starts to see the increasing craziness that goes on. Um, it's fun. It's I, I don't think it's again, it's not anything that's changing the face of cinema. Um, there are no larger points to be made, um, but it does a lot of the, it. It seems like it's Jarmusch playing on a theme. I'm going to keep exploring these places. I'm going to keep exploring these characters. I'm going to see if, you know, by nature of the circumstances they get in, if that says anything about a larger, you know, view of America. I, I think that's what a lot of his, especially early filmography does. Yeah, I think because um, I don't know how much I have to say about the first segment, uh, but I do have one story that uh, I, I, I'd like to that I, that I think works uh, as I relate to the the first segment with the young Japanese couple. Um, <clears throat> when uh, this would have been oh god, two thousand eight, I think, uh, where I had just started working for my uh, previous job at an airline, and uh, I had the opportunity to go to anywhere I, I could go to anywhere that the airline flew and so i was like well i've never been to hawaii so i'm just going to go to hawaii uh in the way that uh, airline employees tend to do kind of recklessly of just like where's a place you want to go okay let's do it and so i uh i went to Air- uh, hawaii for a few days by myself um i was like well i guess i shouldn't uh like i should like book some tours or do something uh but uh it happened to happen at a time when i was personally very like miserable uh and so i spent like most of the like i well i did get out there and see stuff and do fun things uh the rest of the time i was like basically locked into my hotel room just like a complete wreck and so the the boyfriend who seemed who's like he's he's he specifically talks about being mad about the the Carl Perkins always getting shafted for Elvis but like <laughs> they also talk about how like this this place isn't like home or it's he prefers home and he doesn't seem to be especially happy to be there despite his 
you know, obsession with uh, with American music. And the if we're talking about like place yeah. and how people interact in that place, his feeling of I'm in this really cool place and I'm super fucking miserable was like I, I was like, ah. I, I definitively had that experience of I'm in one of the nicest places, the most gorgeous places on earth. And I hate everything. <laughs> yeah. He is fairly miserable. I, 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 I think one of the things that's interesting about that piece um, again, there's some great use of color. There's a shot of him just kind of standing at the window and there are these beautiful kind of patches of color in different areas of the frame. Again, like, like I think of Melville when I see that, but um, his girlfriend is, is the complete opposite of him trying to get him to smile. She smears lipstick on him. She lights his cigarette with her foot and stuff like that. And you can see him break a little bit. He, he wants to be the cool character that he envisions his heroes being. Um, but she's, she can't, she, she won't let him do that. She, she, she won't, let him kind of have that cool affectation um and i like it just for that um i think one thing we do have to talk about with this film john because i know you brought it up so uh we have to talk about the the weird <laughs> the weird perversion that is tom noonan in this film <laughs> <laughs> um yeah so like i like i've i've seen manhunter a couple times and he's like, he's definitely creepy in that. And, but I, I tend to think of, I guess I'm more familiar with like his random appearances in stuff later in life where he tends to be a more gentle uh, presence and the absolute pervert energy coming off of him. Like he could power the sun. I feel (laughs) like with just how disgusting he is in this film, it is it, like and the way that uh, and the way that Nicoletta Brashi handles his insane unwanted advances is to basically give him what he he wants with the understanding that he immediately leaves is, is like she just is a comp- like it's wild because for all the crazy stuff that happens to Nicoletta Brashi in her segment, like she is like, she, she's presumably trying to go home to bury her husband, possibly Roberto Benini, who knows? Um, like there's yes, likely, likely, <laughs> uh, she, there, the reason she's in this movie at all is because there's an incident with the plane. And so she has to spend the night in Memphis, you know, that classic, uh, Memphis to Rome direct flight. Um, <laughs> sorry, I, I did bring up my airline background earlier today. Um, the, uh, and, like oh, and then she follows that up immediately with this with Tom Noonan creeping on her in just <clears throat> the most bizarre uh, way imaginable, and she's just like, "Well, I don't believe your story, but it is a good story, so here's some money, please leave." Um, and it's her his his disgustingness is only matched by her complete effortlessness at how she brushes him aside. Um, yeah. Tom Noonan. I, I I feel like I almost have to like by definition like slightly think less of him now. <laughs> Even though it's a very good performance. It's just too good where I'm just like, I can't not think of you as that dude with the the shirt open way too much and the chain and the the chest hair and this the this the dead stare. It's ugh. It's gross. It's a creepy. It's a creepy performance. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it, it might be the creepiest performance. I I don't know, but it is it is it is singular, and you should see it. Well, and the thing is, is that the 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 thing that I one of the reasons I like that segment as much as I do is because in maybe like so. Just again, this is not a movie about plot, but like after this whole thing happens, she's pretty shaken up about it and ends up at the hotel where everyone else uh, makes their way to. And she ends up sharing a room uh, with this other woman who um, doesn't know the difference between single and double occupancy. Again, just travel industry lingo here. Um, And uh, they end up sharing a room together and she tells the story of, you know, meeting uh, an Elvis hitchhiker on the side of the road. And the woman that she meets and spends the night with is like, Oh yeah, every single person has that story. Um, and if we're throwing out fan theories, cause this seems to be the segment where we're throwing out our own personal Jim Jarmusch fan theories. Um, she says that everyone has that story, um, has a version of that story. Everyone claims to have picked up Elvis's hitchhiker on the way to, uh, uh to Graceland. Um, but that segment sort of comes to a, 
climax when she actually does see the ghost, uh, where Nicolata Brashi actually does see the ghost of Elvis in her hotel room, which my, my personal theory is the only reason we think that there are multiple people who have all have that story is because the one woman told it to her. We don't have any independent verification of that. So is Tom <laughs> Noonan, major creepoid that he is, actually right? Did he actually want... Did he? Did Tonin actually meet uh, the ghost of Elvis and want him to give this lady uh, his comb for a twenty dollars finder's fee? That's my question to you. Uh, nothing is beyond the realm of possibility. I, I I feel safe saying that. I also feel safe saying that, regardless of whether or not that actually is true. It does not stop Tom Noonan from being entirely too creepy in his delivery of said message from the true ghost of Elvis, if that were to be true. Yeah. <laughs> like, I feel if it were true, Elvis would have appeared later to Noonan and been like, dude, that was way too creepy. Yeah, I just you, asked you to give her the comb. Which, I mean, I would have some notes for the ghost of Elvis. Uh, that woman does not need your comb. She's trying to bury her husband. Please leave her alone. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I don't really know how to pivot out of that, except that there's a third segment uh, with fucking Joe Strummer. Uh, if we want to talk about Rockstar, I think you mentioned it. Like, this is the, this movie has, I mean, in addition to having just Tom Waits uh, as the voice again, uh, if we're doing, you know, if we're talking about musicians, this Joe Strummer does the the Tom Waits thing in here. Um, it's You know what's funny? Um, the When I was reading about doing some reading up on this one. I guess this happened around the time that the clash kind of broke up and, or, or it's, it's supposed to be, or what I had read was, was that Joe Strummer maybe didn't socialize as much with the rest of the castmate. Cause trying like, he, he was not in a good place and he was trying to focus on the, the acting stuff while yeah. also like in the aftermath of the clash falling apart. And I was thinking about that, watching it the second time, like trying to focus in on uh, Joe Strummer as Johnny, who, because of his, you know, because of his hairdo, gets called Elvis a lot in this segment. Um, he uh, he does kind of, you know, he, he does kind of have a bit more like, whereas other people I think are having a lot more fun. He is kind of like the one sort of, I think that's dour. And I, th- and I think it works to his character. Like, I think he is, he's supposed to be the guy who's, more down in the dumps and the uh his uh <laughs> will robinson his his partner who also gets laid off he's also laid off but handles it much better i think than uh than joe strummer what uh what kind of joe strummer related uh thoughts do you have on this one um not a whole lot i mean i love joe strummer i love the clash i don't think Strummer has the charisma that Tom Waits does. So I, I think he I think he has to work a little bit harder for the role. Um, and it is kind of a glum and dour role. I think he's really good in it. Um, he and Jarmish had met. Um, I don't know how it might have been like a year or two previously. There's a crazy film called uh, Straight to Hell, which was directed by Alex Cox. It was his feature after Repo Man, uh, which if you want to talk about a rock and roll movie, uh, Joe Strummer, Xander Schloss from the Circle Jerks and Bad Religion. Elvis Costello is in it. Grace Jones is in it. Almost all of the Pogues are in it. Uh, Courtney Love stars in it. Um, it. It's 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 just and Jim Jarmusch is in it as an actor. Uh, so he and Joe Strummer had met and kind of connected. So you know had wanted to bring him into this film. Um, I think the segment works. I, I think part of the reason why this segment works so well is because look, Strummer's not the greatest actor, but Steve Buscemi is a phenomenal actor. Uh, I don't think he gets enough credit because he sometimes tends to play like that kind of tense white guy, you know, character. But you have to understand once you start seeing him do other stuff, that is definitely just a character. Uh, and he's brilliant at it. Uh, also, um, man, my brain is going to turn off for a second. It's uh, Rick Aviles as, uh, as Will, uh, Will Robinson, who I have seen in so many things. And he's usually just like a, like a scumbag. He, he's one of the bad guys in, in, in ghost. Um, and in here he's hilarious. <laughs> and, and I love how they have to take care of Joe Strummer and the way that that vignette connects to the vignette with Nicoletta, um, 
Brashi, the woman that is staying with her in the room, is the girlfriend who just left Joe Strummer. So when she's talking about my boyfriend, uh, you know, we get to the third vignette and you see Joe Strummer, who not only got laid off, but his girlfriend's left him, uh, you know, and Steve, Steve Buscemi is kind of the brother-in-law, although he later discovers in the vignette that Joe Strummer never actually married her. And that sets off a whole other piece. Uh, it's it's the silliest part of the, of the story, uh, but it works. And I think it really works. It works because of what Buscemi brings to the table there and, and just how everything kind of um, escalates and escalates until you finally see the gunshot and what the gunshot is about and, and how that occurs. Um, yeah, no, that that's about all I have for Strummer. And that's probably about all I have for Mystery Train. I, I, I don't know that the um, looking at America through the eyes of others strikes as strongly here, but I really like watching especially when you watch in sequence stranger than paradise like you said you did as well stranger than paradise down by law mystery train um and then right after it night on earth uh all of them kind of are the same things let's look at a location let's talk about a location let's throw characters in there let's watch how they react in kind of like a fishbowl scenario and let's see if that says anything larger about you know the state of humanity or the state of the world and to be okay if it doesn't like i think that's an interesting thing with jarma she's not setting out to do anything large or grandiose like that if something comes out of it hey cool but if not the interest is much more in just watching how people behave, um, you know, and I'm, and I'm totally fine with that. And I'm totally fine with mystery train as a film. Yeah. And I think I would be remiss uh, even to bring the, uh, to bring it down to a much uh, uh, less grandiose uh, note to end on. I'd be remiss if we didn't at least mention how resplendent uh, screaming Jay Hawkins is uh, as, as the clerk running the bell, the way that, like in a small shitty hotel in the in the room where everyone is within like inches of each other's faces how he still just slams that do- that that bell and it just rings and he says and then waits 2 seconds and then just authoritatively says room 25 it's <laughs> to the guy who's a kid like <laughs> inches away from his face it it's and if you were talking we didn't talk as much about the cinematography in this one but i feel like for this being jarmusch's first uh color film and it, it like it looks great but the like screaming jay hawkins red suit is this is is like yeah. in every, with everything else looking as as muted and interesting as it does his his suit just sort of like and it's like shining a light in your eye it's almost that's it's almost that blinding um and uh yeah i wish that screaming jay hawkins uh either could be or was in more movies because i was like i want to see that guy more often well and also total credit to to robbie mueller again um the guy can shoot the guy can shoot anything um it, it was such a great collaboration with him and Jarmish. They also did uh, Dead Man. They did Ghost Dog, Way of the Samurai. Um, we'll probably be talking about Mueller again at, at some point because I know we are definitely going to be doing a Vim Vendors episode, uh, and he was a close collaborator of his as as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, just his his use of the way that he can accentuate color, and part of the reason why that red pops so much is because so much of the rest of the lobby is like in this weird kind of muted green and just those two colors. I mean, they're the Christmas colors and they, and they work so well, but uh, the guy knows how to kind of really accentuate certain themes and certain colors when he's shooting. It's a, it's, it's a beautiful looking movie in an entirely different way than down by law was. Yeah. I think that's probably going to do it for us on, uh, on Jim Jarmusch for, uh, for the evening. Why don't we move to our next segment? Yeah, so let's talk about recommendations. Um, I know that we watched a lot more Jarmish than we actually talked about, uh, John. So do you want to kick it off with uh, anything else you recommend? Absolutely. Um, yeah, we focused uh, more on some of the earlier uh, Jarmish stuff, but uh, for as uh, varied, let's say, as the opinions and executions of later Jarmish stuff is one of the later Jarmish films that I found, like, desperately heartbreaking and moving was 2016's Patterson uh, starring Adam Driver. Um, it is, it, it has the low key energy that a lot of uh, Jarmusch movies have with, um, but with, with Driver's performance, it really allows you to like 
Maybe this is projection. Maybe this is uh, just sort of how good he is at what he does. But it's um, <clears throat> I was able to dig. I was able to pull a lot out of what uh, Adam Driver does in that movie, and it is uh, yeah. I honestly found it like emotionally devastating in a way that uh, I didn't. It, it was a gear that I wasn't expecting to come across uh, when I was watching like Mystery Train or Night on Earth or you know <laughs> some of the other stuff. So uh, Patterson's definitely my recommendation. Um, I'm going to do two. Uh, let's stay on the Jarmusch uh, boat for a couple of minutes. I'm going to recommend if you just want to get a really distilled uh, short taste of Jarmish um, at maybe his lightest and deftest um, check out coffee and cigarettes. This is um, a uh, film from 2003 also filmed in black and white. Um, it's just a series of short vignettes of uh, a group of people, sometimes a pair, sometimes, you know, three or four just sitting down over coffee and cigarettes and having a conversation. Um, Every place is different. Every, you know, there's some people are getting it in a finer restaurant. Some people are at a dive bar, um, but it always involves coffee and cigarettes and it always involves really interesting people. Uh, as far as who is in this movie and why you might want to watch it, basically, if they've been in a Jarmish film before, they're in this movie. So, yeah, Roberto Benigni is in it. Tom Waits is in it. Um, you also get... Um, Bill Murray is in this. Uh, you get Jack White and Meg White. You get the white stripes in here. So if you want to talk about musicians, Iggy Pop is in this movie. Uh, the Rizza and the Jizza are in this, and they are in a great sequence with Bill Murray. Absolutely. Um, I love that Again, one. my favorite is probably Iggy Pop and Tom Waits, because they are, again, two of my favorite musicians on earth. Um, but uh, Roberto Benigni has a crazy section with the comedian Stephen Wright, and it just reminds me of how much I like Stephen Wright. Um, Steve Coogan is in this. Alfred Malone. Lena is in this. I am missing a ton of people. Um, Sinke uh, Lee is in this with his sister, uh, with Steve Buscemi. It's nothing deep. It's nothing crazy. You can kind of watch part of it, stop, watch a little bit more of it. It's, it's literally just a opportunity to sit and listen in on some silly conversations uh, with people that you see you know, in other parts of the cultural universe. Um, and I really kind of like it for that. I like that it's not heavy. I like that it's not trying to do anything. It is very, very self-indulgent. Um, but sometimes self-indulgence works. And I think it does in the instance of coffee and cigarettes, John. I don't know. Did, did, did you find the same kind of thing with it or did it turn you off at all? Uh, I There are segments I like more than others, let's say. A hundred percent. I, I I think I overall I liked it, but yeah, there's some where I was like, okay, let's 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 move on. And then there's others like the, the I mean, I don't want to just list the ones that I like, but when you when you mentioned the Alfred Molina Steve Coogan one, I really like that one. Just it's, the it's way, great. just the reversal, like the just the absolute reversal at the end where um uh, where Steve Coogan is just trying to play cooler than Alfred Molina the whole time. And at the very end, Alfred Molina gets a call from Spike Lee and then Steve Coogan's like, I've made a terrible mistake. Wait, hold on. <laughs> well, that's, what's great too. I mean, like every, every piece is about it's, it's, it's not contrast, but it's, it's, you know, not understanding. It's not how, how do how do I relate to the other person? And you know, typically it's they're not relating or something's not happening. Roberto Benini and Stephen Wright. Stephen Wright does not understand almost anything Roberto Benini is, is saying. There's a weird piece which, to be fair, to, is very understandable. I relate to very, Stephen yeah, Wright in that it's moment. It's <laughs> understandable to not understand that they switch positions and they switch back as they find it better. Uh, the one up and chip is a key piece of. Um, Iggy Pop and Tom Waits. Iggy Pop, I've never, like, if you've ever seen Iggy Pop perform live, to see him as this kind of, he's so, oh, it's Tom Waits, and he just wants to just really connect with him, and it's not working, and he desperately is trying to make the friendship happen. Uh, the, yeah, the Alfred Molina, the one I mentioned, I love Steve Coogan. <laughs> uh, one day we we'll, may have to do an episode on all the trip movies, which I will fawn over for decades to come, but him and Alfred Molina, just they're, they're magic, and that's what happens when you have two people that man really can do this stuff you know just put their heart and soul in into just you know the three to five minutes that that scene takes place in it, it is great it is one of the best ones yeah um i did want to talk about one more movie as well 
just outside of it, uh, at the time that we're recording this, so much stuff is starting to become readily available. Um, I am still not going to movie theaters as of yet. Um, so it's wonderful to kind of start to see some of this stuff come and to be able to rent or stream digitally. Um, so I'm not going to talk about like the newest James Bond uh, or things like that. I want to talk about a movie that came out a little while ago and is finally now available to stream. Um, and that's Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings, which is not a movie that I expected to ever want to talk about. Um, I am a Marvel fan, but I'm not a slavish devotional Marvel zombie uh, in that way. Um, so I was really surprised i have been feeling a lot of marvel fatigue lately especially in kind of the the fighting in dark you know spaces and just the third acts all kind of being the same these weird cgi fests of powers that really don't amount to anything more than different colored lights zapping at each other um so i was really pleasantly surprised by how different of a movie shang chi feels uh I never thought I would watch a Marvel movie where such a large percentage of it uh, is in another language and they don't try to Disney it away by just like, oh, we acknowledge that we're from a different country and now we're just going to speak English the rest of the time. And there's a lot of English in this film, but there's a lot of Chinese spoken in this film and it's kind of wonderful. Uh, I The action in this film looks nothing like any other Marvel film. And I mean, a huge credit to uh, Brad Allen and the rest of the stunt uh, coordination team that were all part of the Jackie Chan stunt team and the what they brought to this film. There are so many little touches that are homages to uh, Jackie Chan, that are homages to Sammo Hung, that are homages to uh, Bruce Lee and the classic style of fight choreography that was uh, that was the crux of what we grew up loving when we looked at old Jackie Chan films and old martial art, art films. Um, and yeah, there is a... Um, a third act that is very CG heavy, but it's CG heavy in service to kind of Chinese mythology in a way that I never thought Marvel would kind of take as well. I'm really surprised at how much, and again, I'm speaking as a white dude who, you know, probably is not nearly as involved in other cultures as I should be, especially to, to speak super intelligently on Shang-Chi and how well or not it represents Chinese culture. But uh I think it's, I, I really like how far they go with it. It also doesn't hurt that uh, Tony Leung, uh, someone that you may know if you listen to our Y episode, is phenomenal in this. Um, and Michelle Yeoh, who I have personally loved since first seeing her decades ago in, in martial art, art films, um, uh, that she's fantastic in it as, as well. Uh, I never would have thought that Aquafina would not only work well in a Marvel movie, but work well in a kind of weird romantic relationship. This is also a film that, you know, suddenly shows romance in the Marvel universe, something I don't know that's ever happened to date. Uh, it, it was a surprising delight. Uh, you know, is it going to change the face of cinema? No. Is it going to change the face of how Marvel interprets movies going forward? I don't know. I kind of hope so. I would love to start to see different things. I haven't seen e Eternals yet. Um, Chloe Zhao, who we talked about when we did Nomadland. Um, I'm hoping that we're going to start to see Marvel movies look a little bit distinctive from one another moving forward. I think James Gunn was able to do that beautifully with, with his films. I think um, Shang-Chi has a little bit of that independent spirit to it. So it's worth checking out if you haven't seen it. <laughs> I People are increasingly telling me that I need to watch it so that they don't have to tiptoe around spoilers in our, in various group chats. So I know it's going to be on my, I know it's going to be coming up within a few weeks for myself, and I'm mostly, uh, I'm mostly excited for it because, uh, as someone who just finished uh, all of uh, Kim's Convenience, I'm I'm psyched to see uh, Simu Liu in a in a live like as the lead of a Marvel movie. That's just insane. Like if you watch Kim's Convenience, he's <laughs> obviously handsome, um, but his whole thing is that he has a, a strained relationship with his dad, and he's kind of a goofball. Like that's that's kind of the that's kind of his vibe. So for to hit, for him to go to a big serious Marvel man is 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 interesting. Well, I don't want to completely spoil this for you, but he's a bit of a goofball in this movie too. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> so I don't want you to worry. 
<laughs> I don't want you to worry about that. Um, he is quite good in the film. I was watching, um, I'm not really sure what spoilers there are. Uh, the one thing I also liked about this, there's no like massive implications for the Marvel universe. So spoiler, it's a movie that kind of sits on its own and really works as its own kind of standalone film. But um Interestingly, I was watching um, a YouTube channel, Corridor Digital. They do a uh, they do a lot of special effects and stuntmen react kind of things. And they did one for Shang Chi today. They had two of the stunt choreographers there to talk about it. And I was shocked that so much of what I thought was CGI was practical, um, oh, wow. including a lot of the stunts that um, he does uh, in in the film. Uh, they were talking about how hard he trained, and they show some of the behind the scenes stuff he does. There is some really sweet Jackie Chan. Act action in one of the first fights on a bus if you see the trailer you know what i'm talking about but right. um a lot of that was him uh you know wrapping around poles and and doing a lot of that almost kind of parkour athletic stuff that jackie chen was so known for um a lot of that was him and it really it, it helps sell the action in a really great way it also helps that you have people that really understand how asian um not Asian, how uh, martial art choreography should be staged and shot so that you can follow logically the flow of things. And you're not doing a hundred cuts to hide the fact that you're actually punching five feet away from the face. Um, it's, it's a lot of fun. I'm looking forward to uh, maybe we'll, we'll have to talk about that off, offline when you get a chance to finally see it. I, uh, I definitely will. Um, Chris, uh, I know we had a, we had a couple of setbacks uh, to uh, you know to work through for this episode, but uh, it was uh, still a great time uh, chatting as always. Um, I still I haven't made any progress on the Agnes Vardis stuff, but uh, I have watched all of the stuff for the next uh, entry, which is the mini series where Agnes Varda travels the world, going to various art exhibits. Uh, so probably within. Let's let's say two weeks. Uh, that should hopefully be uh, uh, from the date of recording. That should be the up. Um, and then, yeah, I think we have some thoughts around uh, how we might wrap up the year. Um, but that stuff is still being planned. So in the meantime, just I don't know. Go to cinemaduel.com, Check out some stuff. And uh, yeah, thanks for listening. Thanks. Take care, everyone.